Welcome to Ear Splits, the core sports podcast where we talk to amazing women, hear stories of courage, and explore the world of endurance sports. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. We're so glad you joined us for this episode of Ear Splits. I'm here with core founder and designer, Kebby Holden. Hello, hello. And we've got a great episode today. Yeah, we're super excited. We've got a couple of amazing people to speak with. Our first one is going to be Barbara Perkins, who is a great core ambassador for us. She was also overall female winner of Ironman Santa Rosa in 2019. And she has just been named the first ever coach of the NCAA varsity women's triathlon team at the University of Denver. So that's, that's super cool. Yep. We're going to dive into that. And then we're also going to get our coaching tip from Jess Smith of Hardcore Coaching. Those are always on points and really helpful. And then we're also going to chat aerodynamics and how to get them what they're all about with Scott Batula. Yep. And we're going to wrap up with our uh, joke of the month, as we always do, from Lecti Altman. Can't not have that. Yep. She is hilarious. Um, but first, let's chat about what's new at Core. Uh, so, Kebby, from a design perspective, what do we got going on? Yeah, we, pretty soon we're going to have our uh, winter, fall gear, cold weather collection coming in. It's a lot of thermal gear to keep you warm when you're training outside in cold weather. We're going to have a couple fun prints for some cycling jackets and, and tops and caps and that type of thing. So just keep an eye out for that. Excellent. And CORE just selected the ambassador team mm -hmm. for 2021, which is a, a very complex and emotional process really but talk to us a little bit about the team and what it looks like for next year yeah we did something brand new this year we committed back in june to increasing the diversity of the team and we're super excited to say we accomplished that and then some um we're currently um more than representing the demographics of the united states <clears throat> just in terms of race and, and how that breaks down um, so we're super excited to introduce a lot of new faces um, but, you know, what was interesting, we're keeping our typical 100 ambassadors, but what's interesting is we had so many of our really awesome ambassadors from the, the number of years back that volunteered to give their space up for um, some new faces. Oh, so, that, so we could meet the diversity goals? Yes. And, you know, that, that spoke to my heart. And I, these have been, of course, they were the phenomenal ambassadors that offered to do that. Um, so we don't want to lose those folks. So we actually started an alumni team this year. So um, we have a lot of the great women that can mentor these new faces on our alumni team. So we're super excited. I'm like so excited about next year. And I really hope we can have some races so we can meet folks in person. Awesome. And I, I saw the breakdown, sort of the demographic and uh, sort of split of the team. You're going to share that in a, are you going to do a blog yeah, post? We'll yeah. have a blog post and a graphic, um, but it's, it's, yeah, we, we, we even, you know, there's so many great women that applied that while we had our minimums, we did go over that for the most part as well, just because there's so many, there's so many great women with so many great stories. Um, and we're excited to talk to those next year on maybe on this podcast. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's get going here. We'll bring Barbara on to talk Yay. about triathlon as an NCAA sport. Let's say hello to Barbara Perkins Dillon. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited you're here. Me too. Well, I'm going to say first off that you have been a core ambassador, a beloved core ambassador for a number of years, but you have really taken off in the sport, not just personally, but of course now with uh, coaching. But so we've been cheering you on for several years. 
But for those who don't know as much about you as we do, tell us a little bit about your sporting background before triathlon. Yeah. So I, with the summer growing up, I probably started swimming at like three. I just loved the water all, all growing up. Um, I joined the swim team when I was nine years old and I ran a little cross country middle school. Um, and then I just kind of chose swimming as my, you know, main sport. And, uh, in college, I ended up joining the water polo team. How did you do that after that's, that's a little different from swimming. Yeah, I kind of got a little burned out at the end of my high school career in swimming, but I still like loved being in the water. So the college I went to St. Mary's up in Moraga had a club water polo team. So I tried out for the club water polo team and I had been like a distance swimmer and they made me the sprinter for the water polo team. <laughs> and on, at our first game, I ran into the other girl when we sprinted <laughs> for the ball. And I was like, oh, sorry. I, I was like, had no idea what I was doing. And it, it was a really fun experience. I love it. Baptism by fire. I'm going to assume you also mm-hmm. did it for the headwear. Yes. I got some good tan lines from uh, those <laughs> helmets that we wore to out in California. Well, that's impressive. That shows you're pretty much a natural in the water for sure. Yeah. Well, tell us about how you made the jump from swimming to triathlon and sort of how that's developed for you over the years. Yeah, so my after my sophomore year of college, I was hanging out with some friends and we were we were eating ice cream and one of my friends was a mountain biker and he's like, Hey, I wanna do a triathlon and he's like, Can you teach me how to swim? I'll teach you how to bike and I was like, Sure. So we went for one swim together and one bike together and never saw him again until the, <laughs> the race. But did a little triathlon uh, locally uh, from my, like where I was from, Pyramid Lake up near Reno. And absolutely loved it. And I kind of after that race, I was like, I want to be a pro triathlete. And I didn't do another one for a couple of years. Um, I ended up running a half marathon in, in San Francisco, the San Francisco half marathon after I graduated from college. And uh, they had team and training there. So mm-hmm. I went to a team and training meeting and I kind of had intended to run a marathon. And then there was a lady there named Heather Bryan and she had bright purple hair. And she's like, hey, we're going to do a triathlon in Hawaii. You want to come? And I was like, sure. So I did Lava Man um, back in 2012. And ever since then, I've been hooked. I have never stopped trying. <laughs> I love it. It sounds like you're always up for anything, diving right in. And now we've cheered for you in Kona after you qualified for Kona a couple of times. Did you gravitate to the Ironman distance or did you your, work your way through the different distances? Yeah, I did the Olympic there uh, in 2012. The following year I did it, uh, or that fall actually in 2012, I did uh, Santa Cruz half. And then 2013, I did my first Ironman in Lake Tahoe. And I just, was naturally a little bit better at the longer distances. Um, the longer I go, the better I get. So uh, I probably like the half Ironmans a little bit better, but I am best at this longest distance. So Ironman's kind of my sweet spot, I guess. I can relate. The diesel, <laughs> the diesel engine. Yep, yep. Yes, it takes me a while to get going. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, us too. Us too. So, well, let's, bad pun, but transition to your new job. <laughs> that is terrible. Yeah, that was, I'm sorry. But yeah, <laughs> tell us the story behind being named as the women's head coach for the University of Denver. How did that go down? So I got hired as an assistant swim coach back in November. And without my knowing, they had started applying to 
the USA Triathlon Grant. So they have put aside money for 40 programs to have women's college programs. And Denver had uh, applied back in November. And I think they had gotten it. But then, you know, COVID hit. And in mid-June, they told me that this was happening. And they asked, you know, if I was interested in the position. And so... I guess I just left for the opportunity. I've always wanted to be like a triathlon coach. I mean, I've I've coached people privately, but I think it's just incredible that it's at the, you know, the college level now and it's more opportunity for women. And we have such a strong contingency for, you know, American women and just like triathletes across the world. So I think it's just an amazing opportunity and I'm so grateful for it. Oh, for sure. It's amazing. Now, CORE has sponsored club teams over the years several mm-hmm. in the Southeast in the sort of the Southeastern conference, but it, that was before it was a varsity sport. So tell mm-hmm. us what, what's the difference between a club team and an NCAA varsity team? I'm still kind of like learning all the ropes and everything, but the, as far as I know, the club format is non-draft. There, there's some draft races, but it's more non-draft and they can do the Olympic distance, whereas the NCAA is draft legal and it's a sprint distance. So there's just a little bit more, variables i guess for the format for the club level and we're kind of in that sprint distance or even a super sprint occasionally but at the national championships it's that sprint distance and it's draft legal yes so you can draft on the bike yeah, that is super interesting and something that as lo- mostly long course athletes that, you know, we know as triathletes, you know, we're kind of ridiculed for having poor bike handling skills because we basically <laughs> just go in a straight line for hours at a time. But draft racing yeah. is entirely different. Chance to throw a few elbows. A just kidding. Yeah, uh-huh. it, it requires yeah. a lot of bike handling skills and know how and you have to read the road and the, the people in front of you. Mm-hmm. How do you learn about that? And how do you teach these these women that are going to be on the team sort of how to get into that and to get the skills and get over any fears they have? I think we'll do a lot of group rides together and try to get out, you know, in the Denver community, Colorado community and go to group rides and just get comfortable, you know, riding with people and being able to draft. And like, if you bump elbows, it's not the end of the world. Like you can still stay upright. Uh, and then like setting up, you know, smaller courses, you know, in a parking lot or something like with cones and just doing some technical skills, like going in tight circles. And yeah, yeah. So that's kind of my thinking. I kind of want to come train with you guys. Is that okay? <laughs> yes, I want to train with them. Can I go back to college? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Maybe not right now with COVID, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself with that question. Talk us through what it's like to have to start a program from scratch and try and find your team. You've got this budget, especially in this time of the virus. You know, what? what's it yeah. like? I know it was kind of, here you go, Barbara, here, here, you're going to be coach. Yeah. You know, make it happen. Yeah. So, I mean, they told me about this about two weeks before the official announcement, July 1st. So, I, my, we were starting this fall, you know, if, you know, all goes well and it's safe to do so. So, I was like, well, you know, but, the easiest way is to try to find people who are already on campus. So I reached out. We have a club swim team and a club cycling team. Um, so I reached out to all those girls. And I've had some great response. And just when we made the official announcement July 1st, I just started getting emails from girls too. And incoming freshmen and people already there and like grad students. And then I even was getting some feedback from people interested in transferring. So that's kind of my plan for this year working on all those um, different pieces and then 
starting to really look into the junior elite races, the high performance teams and uh, talking to those coaches, those athletes and, and recruiting them for next season. Barbara, so will you, will you have some scholarship money to work with? Yes, uh, we will in the future. It's a little bit tight this year, so we don't currently have the scholarship, but there will be opportunity in the, in the future. Gotcha. And let's go back. You mentioned the uh, the distance. You said sprint and maybe sort of super sprint. Uh, so mm-hmm. what, what's the, is it the exact same distance each race or is it sort of course specific? So it's a 750 swim, 20K bike and a 5K run for the sprint. And I think the super sprint is a little bit more variable, anything shorter than that. But that's kind of the set uh, race format that they have. Gotcha. And and I mean, it's a silly question, but how do you score a team triathlon? Is it sort of an average of, of placements or do you just, is it you know, one person that's the leader? How does that work? It's like cross country or swimming in that you can score individually. So you can get first, second, third or fifth, sixth. And then we can take up to seven girls. You score individually when you finish and then overall as a team, like you get points. You get a number of points for first place, a little bit less for second place, a little bit less for third place, and that they combine your score for the club, or sorry, your not your club, um, your overall score as a team. Okay, gotcha. I'm so fascinated by this. So from going to meet to meet or, and you call them meets, a triathlon, I mean, how many races would be on the calendar and for each place that you go or for, for University of Denver, are they um, in the same, you know, do you have the same course every time you come to DU or how do you sort of know what the course is going to be like coming up when you're, when you're traveling? How do you prep your athletes for that? We have to go to four races in a season and we can pick them. Like if we can go to more local races or we can, there's uh, regional qualifiers that you have to go to to qualify for national championships. And the national championships are in November. You get a little bit of leeway with the more local races. There's even a local mountain bike race that's supposed to happen in September here in Colorado. And that, that could technically count towards one of our races uh, if we wanted to do that. Okay. But I think just getting... The experience with the draft legal um, format is really important and getting comfortable, you know, executing that race and be getting used to the distance and stuff. Um, and then maybe, you know, in the spring or the summer, we have a little bit more flexibility with going some different race formats in different distances if they wanted to. And I think we've all heard that Arizona State is sort of the... They're sort of on the top of the pyramid right now with, I think, mm-hmm. Coach Cliff English is the coach there. Legendary coach in triathlon. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, mm-hmm. well-known. What are your sort of expectations going into the first season? Is it just to get your feet underneath you or do you have a, a goal to unthrone or dethrone Arizona okay. State? I think it's going to take a couple of years just to develop the team a little bit and get a little bit of depth to kind of go after them. But I do think that Denver has all the resources and all the facilities and kind of the draw that we need to be competitive with Arizona State. So if we can be competitive with them in, in the next you know, two, three years, that's kind of my goal. Gotcha. And who else is out there if Denver and Arizona State are you know, two of the top contenders, hopefully? Uh, who else is out there yeah. to look out for? South Dakota is another really good Division One team. And 
there's a few Division One teams, but it, before this year, Division One and Two competed together, and Division Three had a separate wave. So, um, University of San Francisco got the top recruit in the nation this year. So, it could they could conceivably be you know pretty competitive even with Division One, Division Two, even if we're scored separately. So getting it into the mix with them since they have opportunities for scholarships and stuff. It's a little bit more competitive across division one, two, three right now, even too. Incredible. I'm, I'm so excited to see what's going to come up. Do you have any favorite coaches that you look to as mentors, either from your personal experience or just other sports out there that you've, you've really been inspired by over the years? I think, you know, Siri Lindley, who's Miranda Carpenter's mm-hmm. coach, she's one of the most inspiring people. And she, she's been, going through, you know, cancer treatment and stuff right recently, but she's one of those people that you're just kind of inspired listening to her um, talking. I think uh, Julie Dibbins is another coach I kind of look up to. She was an incredible athlete. She's now an incredible coach and she has a really great crew. She was always my bike inspiration when I was racing. Yeah. So incredible. And now like Jaylene Flanagan is going to be, you know, for the Bowerman Track Club. So I think that's incredible I, I like really look up to strong you know female head coaches and then my boss here at uh, Denver who's the, the head swim coach Alicia Franklin Hicken she is also become kind of a mentor and inspiration to me she's such a strong fair leader to our team and she's a really great person to look up and to work alongside with I love that. And I'm so impressed that you named exclusively women there. That's that's impressive. And it really goes to show the breadth of the coaching, the coaching that's out there and how far we've come as a sport and triathlon. They were all, um, well, Siri and uh, Julie Dibbins, you know, incredible racers in their own time. So mm-hmm. we know that you are going to be incredibly busy with this new role. You're still the swim and diving coach too. Or, is that right? Yes. I'm going to be a coach slash head triathlon coach that slash like triathlete, you know, from there. I don't know. <laughs> well, your sleeping quota just went way down. <laughs> uh, yes, it did. Hey, Barbara, let's go back to coaching just a little bit uh, because you mentioned Julie Dibbins and we were big fans of hers when she raced. And at least from the outside in, she seemed to have a bit of a reputation as, as a pretty tough competitor, great sense of humor, but sort of hard charger. And I would guess that's sort of her style coaching. How would you describe yourself as a coach? Are you going to be sort of kind mentor? Do you you think you have a style or would that just develop over time? I think that being, you know, an athlete myself still gives me just a unique perspective um, to share. And I kind of know, you know, what the athletes are going through when I'm asking them to do certain sets or workouts. I understand the demand um, that it is. And I just, I kind of like, have high expectations for the athletes I coach and I want them to believe in themselves and just push themselves beyond what they think they are capable of and doing those things in practice so that they know, you know, when they get to a race that they've already done it or they, they know that they can push themselves to that place and be successful. I I don't know what kind of style that is, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of my coaching philosophy. It sounds pretty solid. Yeah. And you'll certainly have the, you'll have the street cred from having you know, Kona, Kona qualified and the swimming background. But, mm-hmm. you know, the sport of triathlon is a pretty expensive sport or it, it can be. How mm-hmm. did, how's that going to work for the team? Are, are people going to have to provide their, their own bikes and helmets or are you going to get sponsors for all that or, is, or do you know yet? 
also, I've worked with Tim Yunt from USA Triathlon, and he's been an incredible help for us. He's helped me get some donations for the program to get us started. And he's hooked me up with some sponsors. And so we're set for bikes this year. I have a couple potential wetsuit sponsors. We're also just overall as a school working on a new apparel sponsor, which is going to be a huge announcement. And then I think you guys know who's going to be making our try kits this year. <laughs> we know some, we've heard uh, tell we know a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And and, and a definite shout out to Tim because he is, he gets so much done and he's been such an amazing guy in the sport. He's just very passionate and well-connected and he just wants triathlon at the collegiate level to be really successful. So he's willing to help out anybody who needs it. And he's, he's got a wealth of knowledge. He's really helped me out a lot. You know, speaking of helping out, I mean, you've got a huge number of fans in the sport and certainly your ambassadors and team members. If someone said, look, I, I believe in the sport of triathlon and I want to help out. Can an individual do that? If someone said, look, I want a thousand dollar scholarship or something in my name. Is that possible or is that a sort of bureaucratic nightmare? I did meet with our fundraising team the other day and we can do uh, fundraising and we can do some scholarships through the, our endowment for our program. So that is definitely a possibility. We've already had some people come forward and donate to the program, which is amazing, you know, especially during this crazy time to to have people support us from the community. So yeah, they can definitely do that if if they would like to. And uh, we would really appreciate that. And what's the process for that? Is there a a person to call or an online site to go to? We're still working on that, but they can either contact me or Emily Boone, B-O-O-N-E. She's um, in charge of our fundraising at you for our triathlon program. Gotcha. And we can share after offline, you can give us an an info box or an email box so you don't get inundated personally if you want. Mm -hmm. And we can include that in the uh, sort of the notes for the podcast. Yeah, that would be incredible. Thank you. Well, Barbara, one last question on topic, and then we're going to, if it's okay, ask you some rapid fire questions, which is what we always try and finish with. Okay, sounds good. As we kind of alluded to before, you're obviously going to be incredibly busy going forward. And we know long distance triathlon training takes a lot of time. Anyways, are you going to train and compete next year, provided there are races? Yes, that's still my intention. And I'm kind of figuring that out, you know, as I build the schedule and maybe, you know, hopping in some of the workouts with the, the kids I'm coaching, you know, beat me. Then I'll probably <laughs> jump in with some of them. But I think like some bike and run workouts might be able, I might be able to jump in with them. So, well, you seem to yeah. excel with being under pressure and at being a master of time management and and just being successful, having these incredible goals. They are so lucky to have you as a coach, Barbara. I'm so excited to see what you bring up there and and how you sort of facilitate this up and coming era of new triathletes. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask you a few, uh, just a couple rapid fire questions. The first one may be obvious because of where you live, but do you prefer mountains or ocean? I would say I prefer mountains, but if they could be next to a body of water, like a lake or something, like that would like be ideal because I still, you know, love the water. So I'm 100% with you. Around the mountains. Perfect. Best of both worlds. Okay, what book are you reading right now? I'm reading Endure. Uh, so it's hmm. about kind of the psychological side of like endurance sports and how you 
align all your training and your your mental tools into having like kind of the perfect race and what it takes to figure out what those those tools are and how to best use them to make yourself more successful. Yeah, it's sort of the mental part, the other side of the training that's so important. Do you know that the mm-hmm. author offhand and just so our, re- our listeners can, if they're interested, pick that up? Alex Hutchinson. Perfect. And when I say listeners, I mean myself. So, um, <laughs> okay. What are the top songs you're listening to right now for working out? I like to kind of just put on like Pandora or Spotify and just have like a random mix. I like dance or like house music. So I listen to like Avicii, Corella, Medina, stuff like that. And I'll just put on a station and kind of rock out to something that has a good beat. I love it. And I work out. All right. Well, look, we know it's the afternoon and you've got a lot of work to do next week. So we really <laughs> appreciate your time. But uh, Coach Barbara perkins Dillon, Coach BP. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us and good luck with the season. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you guys back on the race course. Thanks so much, my friend. It's time for Talk Nerdy to Me, the segment where Core Ambassador Scott Batula talks technical and gives us the inside scoop on the hottest and coolest gear in the market. Scott, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, and just to start off, uh, so no one gets confused, I am by no means an expert, nor do I claim to have all the knowledge, and I'm definitely not some sort of scientist. I'm just a gear nerd with a little bit too much free time. And uh, <laughs> take all my words and advice with a grain of salt. And in the end, feel free to use what I've learned over the years in you know this industry and this sport as sort of guidance, not necessarily calling it the gospel. It's just stuff and knowledge I've learned along the way from other subject matter experts and they are far smarter than me. So I'm just taking what they had to say and reinterpreting it for people to understand a little easier. Awesome. Well, you could have a far worse vice to do with your free time. So um, (laughs) just so everybody out there knows how grateful our our girl ambassadors, our women ambassadors are to have Scott on the team and they have been picking his brains on gear questions. Um, But let's talk about how nerdy triathletes and cyclists can be when trying to gain those extra few seconds on a race course. And, you know, once you, you know, you're training and you've got your eyes set on a PR, the next thing you tend to think about is your gear and how can I make it faster? How can I make it more aerodynamic? I know that counts, but tell us why aerodynamics are so important and kind of what they are. Okay. So, Uh, Simply put, aerodynamics, I mean, for most of you, it's just an interaction of an object and how air flows around said object. So from any point of view, you can take that aerodynamics and apply it to anything, especially in triathlon, especially the bike. But I wish it were that simple. (laughs) We can get a little deeper into aerodynamics and I'll kind of explain a few things. Um, Aerodynamics has two major factors, the shape of the object and the velocity it's traveling. And as simple as that sounds, it gets a lot more complicated than that. And we don't need to, you know, dive too deep (laughs) into it, but take it for, it's just how something moves through air. And when you break down aerodynamics in terms of the actual formulas for it, you're going to find out that the velocity is a squared factor in that formula. And for layman's terms, it's the faster you go, the more the air is going to affect you. So when you bring that up, it's going to also show for it's going to take more force the faster you go. And the force actually becomes quadrupled 
Oh, sorry, can we go? So I was just, I just want to make sure I understand it correctly. So the faster you're going, so say the pros are fa- facing sort of more aerodynamics or more resistance than, um, than say a, a, a middle to back of the package grouper would be. Exactly. A pro, because of their speed, they're going to encounter more aerodynamic resistance. Yep. So therefore, they need to find ways to gain marginally by changing their aerodynamics, but their time savings is actually going to be smaller. And on the flip side, the aerodynamic gains for a middle or back of the packer, you know, the normal guys like me and everyone else out there probably listening, is your time savings actually grow because your, your speed is not quite as high, so you don't have to change your force as much. That's so interesting. I think that's an important detail to notice. Yeah. And um, so to speak on aerodynamics a little bit more, it's um, that resistance or drag that we're talking about, you know, as you, the object, and your bicycle are trying to, you know, punch through the air, as they say, you want to try to keep those, uh, those uh, resistances as low as possible. And at some point, you're going to only train to the best of your ability. You only can make yourself go so fast. So then you start looking at things such as gains based on, you know, marginal adjustments to aerodynamics, which will then take your exact said force and basically make you faster by not creating as much drag. Okay, so most people, when they think of aerodynamics, they go directly to the bike, the mechanics of the bike, the sh- you know, the p- position on the bike, the blades of those, the spokes even, all those kinds of things. But for as a clothing company, can um, does gear count, does clothing count, does your kit count for aerodynamics? Is there anything you can do to improve your speed just with the clothing you're wearing? That is 100% true. So as much as everybody wants to tout the bike as, you know, the end all of aerodynamic gain, a bike, you ask, you know, any standard person that works in the industry, it's only about 20% of the actual drag. The bike is built to be aerodynamic, no matter if it's, you know, your standard beach cruiser all the way up to your top end triathlon bike. Is that right? Only 20%? It's only 20%. So the rider actually accounts for somewhere around 80% of that drag. That number can, you know, fluctuate a little. But when you talk 80% now, your position and now your clothing, because that's the two things that are interacting with the air the most, how big are you and what are you wearing mm-hmm. is going to be the, the biggest factor that you can essentially change. And from a clothing company um, standpoint, I like to come up with this simple statement. I told a, a lot of people skin is faster than looser, ill fitting clothing, but aerodynamic and well fitting clothing is always going to be faster than skin. Yep. So even though I'd love to race naked, that probably would be frowned upon. <laughs> I'm not sure how Lexi would take so, that. <laughs> I don't think anybody else on the course would appreciate that. But um, Don't sell yourself short, Scott. Give the people what they want. <laughs> I'm, all bo- I'm all for speedo racing again. <laughs> but apparently I got to wear a top as a man now. Such per a bummer. Iron Man rules. Okay. But yeah, if you wear ill or loose fitting clothing, I mean, everybody knows the parachute analogy. You're just catching wind. You're just creating more drag. So if you were to have basically almost the least amount of clothes on, you would actually be faster. We're learning in the industry that the more clothes you can wear to cover skin, because skin is actually not fast at all when tested in a wind tunnel. They've come up with certain fabrics and fabric designs and the way that they're laid out on the actual race suits, you know, you wear in a race. It changes the way air flows over the human body, Mm -hmm. how long air sticks to the object, how it trips, as they call, you know, in quotations, how the air is tripped as it passes over you and 
how fast it attaches and reattaches to the object. And the way you manipulate fabrics themselves can not only make you faster than the skin that's exposed, but can also create less drag for what the air is going to interact with after it already hits, say, the front of an object like your hands or your shoulders as it moves down your back, creating different you know vortexes behind mm-hmm. your hips, behind your legs, in front of that rear wheel of the bike. The fabric can actually change the way it rides. That's why there's actually UCI and ITU rules against right. what you can and cannot wear because aerodynamics plays that much of a part from a clothing standpoint. Right. A, a similar factor came up, I think, in, in USA, or actually probably World Swimming a couple of years ago when they had that, that crazy, Speedo had that crazy fast suit and all the uh, US athletes were just killing it. Um, and they had to ban it because not everybody had access to that technology, but it was a long suit. So it covered most of the, the legs, um, the skin on the legs. Exactly. But, yeah, the same thing is applied in hydrodynamics. I yeah. mean, the more you can cover, the faster you are going to be. Uh, the reason... The top uh, triathlon companies make swim skins for non-wetsuit legal races. The more right. you can cover and be hydrophobic, the faster you're going to be. So we, you know, it's not just the fabric. They have some amazing fabrics out there with dimples and, um, you know, they're incredibly lightweight and they, they're dimpled almost like a, a golf ball. So, you know, a golf ball is dimpled so it goes further, faster. Um, so it, would you say it, it's also the placement of that those fabrics as you said it doesn't matter so much on the bike if it's right on the front panel because you're you're in aero bars so it's all about the placement of those fabrics can you talk a little bit or would you say that that's why you're seeing so many more sleeves on the long distance course that is i mean it's a two i would say it's a two two-sided approach to it the sleeves are always going to be faster because obviously after the wind goes around your hands then you bring up the glove argument but the first thing it's going to interact with is your head that's why and you have your helmet for that and your front of your shoulders. No matter what angle you're sitting in the aero bar, sitting up, like you said, the front panel is not going to catch that wind as much as you would think. And you're, you know, the widest point is that, you know, chest and abdomen area. But your shoulders is where the air is actually going to move around. So placing those specific fabrics around the shoulders and having a nice fitted top in terms of your arms being covered, it's not going to catch wind, create additional drag, and also it creates a little bit more coverage in the sun too for a lot of people Mm -hmm. or in cooler races, the way those new fabrics are designed, they can also, you know, retain that, that uh, moisture wicking property and it'll keep you a little warmer than some other older fabrics that would just, just make you colder essentially because it's just holding moisture. Scott, we've been talking primarily about the bike and you explained how the drag quadruples as speed doubles but what about runners is aerodynamic something you should think about as a runner as well for sure so running has its own tangible aerodynamic properties albeit you know significantly smaller compared to a bike as the speed and velocity isn't as high so that's kind of a given but when you consider the aerodynamic formula applied to running we can't make ourselves smaller right it's not like a mm-hmm. bike where we can crunch down and get into a more aero position yeah, more you want to back. run mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it would be pretty funny to run hunched over to avoid wind i would love to see the that would be so effect fun. of that but since we can't make ourselves smaller we want to run in our best you know tall bright powerful position what we can do is effectively draft mm-hmm. not only wearing better clothing can help but that's a little bit of a deep discussion the effect you can get from a draft is 
going to gain so much more on the run than people realize because as conditions shift from, say, a hard tailwind to where you feel like you're actually being pushed all the way up to no wind, a crosswind into a hard headwind, you're slowly increasing the air moving around you. So even though your run pace is steady, the air is actually moving around you and that's what's creating the velocity. You're not necessarily running 20 miles an hour. But if you're running into a 20 mile an hour headwind, mm-hmm. you can see where that velocity is being created. So the drag starts becoming a, a, a lot more increasingly, you know, substantial to your run pace. And the more resistance you encounter, the more force you're going to need to apply if you were to talk about the actual formula. And by mm-hmm. force, I mean, basically pace, pace and effort, right? So a lot of coaches like to teach you sitting in. I mean, yep. you find a runner running the pace about that you want to go or possibly even a little faster and the amount of effort you're going to have to put into by sitting behind them and letting them, you know, quote unquote, punch through the air for you. You're using less energy and in the end, that could be more to take you deeper into the race at the pace you want Mm -hmm. or enough for a kick late late in the run. And just to be clear, uh, every so everybody knows, drafting is illegal in, in anything but, you know, some of the ITE races, but it's absolutely legal for run for the run section of the of the race. So how do you do how do you draft? How, do you just tuck in? You go directly behind somebody? Do you stay a little bit to one side? How do you do that? <laughs> so I, I like to take it from the swimming world as you can sit on a person as long as they're comfortable with you being there because you in a run, because you're not moving at those velocities, you have to be as absolutely close to them as possible. And that basically means, you know, your foot extension is right on their heel kickback. Mm-hmm. You have to be right behind them and you have to almost directionalize the wind as well. So you, if it's a, a solid headwind, you got to sit right behind them. You have to get as close as you can. The second even a one body length opens up between you, you're allowing air to flow around that person not only flow between you, but the air can also, you know, crisscross in that vortex. And now you're not gaining the same amount of gains you would as if you actually got right behind them, literally on their heels. But trust me, from experience standpoint, there's a lot of people that aren't going to appreciate that. So you may have to be a little strategic. Um, Run behind one person for a few minutes. You know, they may not notice you. They may be in the zone. And hey, you find somebody else, you know, come past you. And that looks like a pace that you can hold or, you know, uh, manageable for you within your training ability and you slide behind them for a few minutes, that person may go to an aid station. So you might have to find someone else. But if you can constantly leapfrog between people, you might be able to not just run your goal time, but possibly even even a little faster because you're not going to have to use as much right. energy. Uh, so fascinating. I mean, we can go on and on about all of this uh, for a long time. I, we are going to wrap it up here just in the, to respect time. But Scott, what is, if you could buy one thing, that would make you the most aerodynamic, what would it be? One thing. One thing. So I know, you know, the people out there are probably thinking bike, wheels, helmet, custom skin suit. No way. If I had unlimited amount of funds, I would buy time in a wind tunnel. Because Fascinating. The, Good point. The, the, it makes you sense. You actually will ha- have a tangible number, what they call coefficient of drag, the CD. And you can come up with the after effect of that, which is your CDA, your coefficient of drag area. And that is your rider profile. Right, it's and specific you to you. Up, it's exactly specific to you and the gear you're wearing. And your position so you on the bike and everything. Every factor that you can possibly come up with, your position, your hands, the suit you're wearing, the helmet you're wearing, glasses, no glasses, you know, right. in my case, a beard, no beard, um, shaving <laughs> your legs. warmer, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, it it all comes it comes down to what number can it yeah. give you that's tangible that you can create the most power in the most comfortable position. Yep. While being the smallest frontal area you can you know that possibly is, create. That is excellent advice. Why spend money on something that's not actually working for you, Scott? Yeah. You have been amazing as always. Um, we're gonna keep having you on here in our talk nerdy to me sections. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the information. It's a, it's a joy to listen to you talk all about your stuff. Yep, and thank you for everything you. Do with all the ambassadors in the endurance so endurance good. sports community. Oh no, thank you guys so much. I mean, you guys gave me the opportunity, and all this time, you know, been supportive of Lexi. It's the least I can do for Core as a brand who not only supports women but the entire, you know, triathlon and endurance community. That I can at least give back a little bit is, you know, my thanks. All right, that's what we love about you. All right, Scott Petula, thank you. Thanks, Scott. Now it's time for your coaching tip from Jess Smith with Hardcore Coaching. Hi there. So great to be back on the CORE podcast. This is Jess Smith. I'm a professional triathlete and coach with Hardcore Coaching. Um, and today I want to talk about different types of runs. So um, I get questions a lot about if if you want to improve your run, what types of runs should you be doing? Um, so the first thing to note is um, with running, the more you run, the better um, the better your durability is, the better your efficiency is, and you can really make big gains in the sport by running often. So don't, um, get fixated on having to run a certain distance every time. The more you can run, the better. Um, but you want to make sure that first you have great run form. So you don't want to go out there and just increase your mileage a ton, um, with form that's not so great. It could put you at risk for injury, um, and you may not be able to see the gains that you otherwise would. So I would definitely recommend videotaping your run from the side, from the front, from the back, um, and or run with a friend who you trust, who is knowledgeable about running form. Um, show your video to an expert and, and get some analysis and try to make some changes to your running first. Um, start with short, short, easy runs to try to fix your form um, if you need adjustments there. So you want to make sure that you're um, you've got a little bit of a forward lean um, running is almost like a controlled fall and that you're hitting the foot with your forefoot, that you're not striking first with your heel um, because that that can really slow down your cadence and um, lead to other problems. So you want a good forward lean and you want a four foot strike. Those are the keys. And then, you know, there might be other little things that you can work on. But if you can hit those two things, that's that's extremely important. Um, so, again, see what you can do about improving your form before you start working on running a lot. Um, and then, you know, if you can run four to five days a week, I think that is fantastic. So the types of runs that I would really recommend that you put into your training plan, um, if you can run four to five days a week, the first one, and it's my favorite, um, it's the really, really easy run. So you want to do about 50 percent of your long run um, in terms of time or volume. Um, and you just want to go out and you want to run as easy as possible. This run cannot be too easy. You want to be running because you want to get the benefits of the push off and, and the strength building, but you want it to be as low heart rate as possible. So you're putting miles on the legs, you're increasing your durability and your efficiency, but you're not putting a lot of stress on the body. So that's the number one goal. Um, and then over time, as you do these runs, the hope is that you'll either be able to lower your heart rate at the same pace. So as you get fitter, um, your heart rate will actually start to drop or you'll be able to maintain that nice low heart rate, but your pace will get a little faster. 
Um, the second run um, that I love to put on the schedule is a math run. So that's math stands for max aerobic function. And it's basically a run where you try to hold the heart rate that's at um, for most people, it's going to be the top end of zone three or low end of zone four. But it's the crossover point where you're still aerobic right before you go anaerobic. So, um, you know, it's it's a challenging pace. Um, but you don't want to be in your anaerobic zone. That's when you go into oxygen debt and you start to build up lactic acid. Um, so it's just slightly under threshold. Um, and if you're not sure what heart rate you should be running at, um, what you can do is you can go out and you can run a 10 minute easy warm up and then run for anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, um, at about 75 to 80% effort and then just do a cool down. And you do that three or four times over three or four weeks and then take that average heart rate from that, that section where you're running the 75 to 80% effort. Um, and you want to average those heart rates and that's going to be about where you're going to want to run. For these runs. So I always do a warm up of 10 to 15 minutes of easy running, do a little stretching, and then I might do 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even two by 20 minutes um, at that heart rate. And the goal is to maintain the same heart rate throughout the entire duration of the run. So if you're um, you start to see your heart rate creep up a little bit, which is totally natural. You're going to have to slow down to keep it under control. So um, the more you do the run, the more you're in touch with your body and kind of We'll start to feel out where when you need to pull it back a little bit. Um, but the goal is to just maintain that exact heart rate over the duration. And again, you'll see you'll see over time that your pace will have to slow or your heart rate will go higher. Um, and, you know, over time, hopefully, again, just kind of like the easy runs, you'll find that at that heart rate, your pace will get faster and faster. And if it's not, if it's getting slower, then there's something going on in your training plan that you really need to look at. Maybe you're over training, maybe you're, um, you know, maybe you're not sleeping well, uh, maybe you're not getting enough recovery. And so it's a really good indicator of, you know, are you going, are you moving forward in your training? It's a great benchmark workout to do. Um, then third is the brick run. So this is running immediately after biking. So if you're training for a triathlon, you need to, um, work that transition. You need to get your body used to running well after you're done biking. So at least once a week, um, I like to try to do a brick run after almost, after almost every bike ride, even if it's just 10 minutes. Um, because again, you work that transition, but at least once a week, try to run immediately after the bike as quickly as you can have everything set up, your shoes, anything you need to change into ready to go. So you get off the bike and you head out the door for the run. These don't have to particularly be long or very hard. Um, and then in the early season, I like to do these easy, maybe 20, 30 minutes at the most. Um, and then as I get closer to racing, I'll, I'll throw in some race pace efforts in there as well. Um, but again, probably not go longer than 30 to 40 minutes. Um, even training for 70.3 or Ironman, um, maybe up to an hour for Ironman, but again, you can do, um, more running throughout the week. It doesn't all have to be on that same day as, as a long ride. Um, and then fourth, the fourth run is a long run. So this is obviously very important if you're going to do a, you know, a longer race, um, you want to make sure that you have the miles on your legs and that you have the durability to run well for a long period of time. Um, so I think if you're racing a sprint or an Olympic, maybe even up to 70.3, I would recommend building your long run up to slightly longer than your race distance. For Ironman, I wouldn't go any higher than 22 miles. I think somewhere between 18 and 22 is, is great um, in terms of long run volume. 
Um, just be careful as you're increasing your long runs. You don't want to add, add more than 10% volume onto your volume each week. Um, and then what I like to do is in the, in the early seasons, build up to the volume that you want to max out at. So if I'm training for a 70.3, I might build up to a 14, 15 mile run. And all of those build runs, all of those first, you know, few months, I'm just going aerobic. I'm just running, getting in the miles, enjoying myself, you know, turning off my mind and, um, it almost becomes a meditation run. And then as I get closer to race season, I'll start including more race pace work, um, and make those runs a little bit more intense. But at that point, I've done those, done that volume several times. And so adding a little bit of effort into those runs isn't extremely taxing on my body. But if I start trying to add race pace efforts from the beginning, as I'm building on the miles, it just adds a lot of stress on the body. And then, um, you know, it takes me a couple days to recover and then it might impact my training after, you know, for days after that, which is not what you want when you're swimming and biking and running and you're trying to maintain um, a high level of consistency. You want to you want to have those long workouts be impactful, um, but but not <laughs> but not impact um, in a negative way. You're training for the next few days. So, um, you know, if you can do four runs a week, the easy run, the, the max aerobic run the brick run and the long run are the runs I recommend. Um, I'm sure you might be surprised to hear that I'm not recommending an interval run. Um, I think interval runs really should be reserved for people who are um, really trying to race and, and take their, um, take their performance to the next level. And if that's you, great, then I would add some intervals. I wouldn't um, spend a lot, you know, I wouldn't, spend a ton of time on the track from an interval session or a track session. What you want is to get some speed, um, but not so much so that again, that you put too much stress on your body and it impacts your training for days after. So you want to finish a track session feeling invigorated and good, not exhausted because that's a lot of stress on your body and it really tears you down. If you are, you know, training for a first time 70.3 or first time Ironman, you don't need to do that speed work. What you need to focus on is the aerobic base building. Um, that max aerobic function is going to give you some speed work, is going to give you some higher intensity, but not so high um, of intensity that it wears you out for <laughs> long stretches. Um, and then as you get faster and fitter, then, yeah, you can you can introduce some intervals as well. Um, and if you're you know just itching to do a little speed work, I would put it at the very end of the aerobic run, just little pops of effort or even in even in your brick runs as you get closer to race season, you can put a little race pace effort or maybe even a little faster than race pace effort in those in those brick runs. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think I think you save you know, you save the stress, you save your body a little bit um, and and don't worry about the track um, for the most part in your training. Um, if you want to know more about hardcore coaching, check us out at www.hardcorecoaching.com. Um, or you can follow us on Instagram at hardcore coach. Thanks. Happy training. They say laughter is the best medicine. So here's core ambassador Letty Altman with your joke of the month. I have two new favorites for us today. The first one, why couldn't the green pepper practice archery? because it didn't have an arrow. And the second one for a bonus today, why can't you trust an atom? Because they make up everything.